Good morning. Good morning to all of you out in what is the equivalent of the Mount Hermon balcony. Hello. I see you. Apparently, you have a hard time seeing me, though, because I talked to a couple this morning. They're, they, like, recognize the voice, but not the face. And I get this a lot at our church. People from the balcony will, will meet me a little bit up close and personal, and I've heard this, I don't know, a dozen or more times. You know, you look different up close. <laughs> and then the conversation just kind of hits a little bit of a speed bump because they don't know what to say. Like, different can't be good, you know? So I've just learned to respond, yes, I'm one of these people who looks better the farther away you are from me, so... <laughs> Well, I want to welcome all of you, and I want to thank you. Thank you for this week. Uh, this is not uh, something I take for granted in a number of ways. I certainly don't take for granted the privilege of being able to come to Mount Hermon to be part of a tradition that includes people that are my heroes in ministry. And so it is incredibly humbling to be a part of that, and I, I don't take that for granted, nor do I take you for granted. In fact, I've been praying for you for several months. Uh, Mount Herman was kind enough to give me a list of all of your names, your tax returns, <laughs> your, your passwords to your computer. So No, they didn't do any of that stuff, but God knew who you were, and that was enough, and so I've been praying for you, and that has enriched my time. There is one thing I did take for granted, though. I took for granted what God would have for me this week. I took for granted the work that he would do, be doing in my own heart. And for that, I'm, I have been uh, surprised in a very wonderful way. I've been reminded in a very wonderful and necessary way. I said to Ricky the other night, yeah, I was kind of oblivious to the things God was going to be doing in me this week. And so I praise God for that. And I hope that you are able to say the same I want to give credit to a pastor named Andy Stanley for informing some of my thoughts today. And so thank you, Andy, wherever you are. But as you've been hearing us talk about where our families uh, is in our season of life, we're not at the empty nest years, but we can see it from where we're standing. <laughs> We've got one son, he'll be a sophomore in college. Our other two will be in high school, and they are starting to, you know, leave the nest in, in little fits and starts and stuff like that. Uh, there was a week in May. Uh, my oldest was down at Cal Poly. My uh, second son, Luke, was up in Lake Tahoe, and my youngest, Anna, was in Japan. So that was a week that gave Laura and myself an opportunity to kind of, you know, get a preview of what our new normal will be before we even realize. I mean, time just continues to fly by faster and faster and faster and faster. So I know that day is going to arrive probably sooner than I would prefer. But during this week, I start to think about all this, and, and I'm going, you know, have I even really prepared them for that day when they finally, you know, leave the nest for good, or at least till they come back, you know what I mean? But uh, I'm thinking about what will stick with them? What will be impressed upon their hearts, you know, in, in both big and small ways? 
And a couple of things came to mind. We were, you know, there's this Marie Kondo thing that's kind of a big trend. So we we're taking advantage of kids being out of the way. We we're going through boxes. And I found uh, this picture of Jack, one of the many hundreds, maybe thousands of snakes that he caught. He was just a little nature boy growing up. And one of the things that I instilled in Jack is, was this. When you catch a wild animal, you, you have to appreciate the fact, you have to understand that that little animal thinks the next thing that you are going to do is eat it. Right? It's not enjoying the experience as much as you are. And so I want you to release it after a few minutes. Let it go back into the wild because that's stressful. You're going to stress it out. If you stress it out too much, too much it may just die because you've, you've, you've used up some valuable calories and the, they're hard to come by. And so, uh, you know, he really latched onto this. And so he'd be with his friends or his family. Here he is with his cousin. He, he has the snake and he's like, okay, time to let it go. Don't want to stress it out. Don't want to stress it. Then it's got to go. You know, so I'm like, okay, that stuck. We also try to impress upon our kids. You know how kids are just kind of innately picky eaters growing up. Not too many kids are, you know, like, can I have, you know, more vegetables, mommy, or something like that? Or Sarah's young boy just cracked me up yesterday because his plate was just, it was this giant plate of croutons for lunch. <laughs> it was so awesome. <laughs> uh, well, what did, that was great. Good for you. He's a camp. But you try to instill in them, you know, a little bit, you know, a, a sense of there are other things to eat. And so we are phrased with our kids, hey, be an adventurous eater. You know, it sounds fun that way, right? Be an adventurous eater. And so one time I made this dish. It's called coca van. It's, it's, it's chicken braised in wine, right? And, and this wasn't just any old coca van. This was the Julia Child version, which is complex, takes hours to make. And when I placed it on the table before our young children, <laughs> they couldn't have hated it anymore. I mean, I, 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 I've never made it again. Not because I wouldn't like to, but it's because the kids won't let me. They just hate it. That is just on the list of things they will never eat again. However, it kind of stuck. So I mentioned that uh, Anna was in Japan, and she, she sends me this picture uh, of what can only be called alien on a stick. I mean, look at that. It's like, what is it? Uh, and she's about to eat it, even though she's kind of semi-enthusiastic. You were with her, Adrian. Yeah? You bought, Adrian bought it for her. Thank you. She bit the head. That's what he just said. And I was thinking, you know, the upshot of this is that if aliens ever actually do invade the earth, we can just throw them on the grill and uh, we'll be fine. <laughs> Don't have to worry. So that's stuck. That's my point. Okay. And again, these are just little, you know, tokens of the, the significant things you want to stick. You know, the, your worldview, your faith, the, the, the person and work of Jesus in their lives and God's calling upon them and all these things that are part of their, you know, you hope to be your spiritual legacy, right? And you don't have to be a parent to have this type of legacy, this type of legacy in the life of someone else. So let me just pull in the rest of the room. We had a, a next-door neighbor named Lisa that moved in three months after we moved into our home. And Lisa was a single woman, and uh, she just, God grafted her into our family. 
she became like a member of our household. When Lisa would come over to our house, there'd be a knock, and then the door would open. You know, the knock was just a warning. Here I come. And she'd just roll right in. That was never off-putting. It was just like normal. She was Aunt Lisa to our kids. And dear, dear friend to me and to my wife, Laura. And she had a couple traditions. Every summer, at the beginning of summer, she would knock on the door and she'd waltz right in and she had new bathing suits for all of our kids. And she'd always go to O'Neill's and she'd just pick out like these killer trunks for the boys and cute little, you know, bathing suit for Anna. And she's delighted to, to pull those out of the bag and give this to her. I've never bought a bathing suit for any of our kids. Lisa bought all of them. And then at the end of the summer... She'd do the same thing, but this time it would be shoes for school, and it might be, you know, dress for Anna or pants for the boys and stuff like that. Again, she's probably given our kids more clothing than we have because giving was her main love language, and it just delighted her. And she had such an amazing influence in our, the lives of our kids. Seven years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer. Stage four. And she made the first five years of treatment look easy. She's a tough lady. Never complains. Never felt sorry for herself one second. But last year, that particular chemo cocktail just obliterated her taste for food. She could not eat anything. And she starts to waste away. Little by little by little. This time last summer, she was a shell of herself. And yet, in June, there's a knock on the door, and here comes Lisa. Not as briskly as before, but she comes in, her baseball hat on, for obvious reasons. And she sits down, and there's the bathing suits. And then at the end of the summer, when it's just getting hard for her to go from her house to our house, and our houses are like 15 feet apart, um, there's the school clothes, there's the shoes. Every gesture, an effort. Every gift now, a sacrifice. Not financially, but just energy, strength, walking, talking through pain. It's in those moments, as she knew her time was short, and we knew her time was short, that these gestures of love carry so much freight, because you know this may be the last time I have to express to you how much I love you. As we enter the gospel story today, we arrive at the place where Jesus knows his time is short. This is the night that he will be arrested. In a few hours, he will be tortured, he will be beaten, he will be humiliated, and the next day, he will be crucified. So this is, this is a sacred moment. I mean, they're all sacred moments, but this is, this is incredibly sacred. And so we enter into this in John chapter 13. And if you want to look that up, uh, you can do that. But, but clearly on the Lord's mind 
is what is going to stick with my disciples? I've been teaching them. I've been discipling them for three years, and now it's going to be in their hands to continue. And in that moment, it says, chapter 13, John's Gospel, starting at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Like I said, the next day he will die. This is what we call the Last Supper. And with no introduction, no real explanation at first, he gets up and he takes out his, his outer garment and looking very much like a slave, he takes up a bowl of water and a towel and he goes and he kneels at the feet of each and every disciple, including Judas. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Judas is about to betray him. Jesus knows this. And yet, Jesus is washing Judas's feet. Do you have a Judas in your life? Someone betrayed you. What would it look like for you, knowing that that betrayal was about to happen, to actually wash their feet and treat them with the same love as the others who remained loyal? And yet that's what Jesus does. And after washing 12 pairs of dirty feet, he gets back up and he puts his clothing back on. And he says this. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. In other words, guys, I want you to serve each other just like I've served you. Now, did that stick? Well, let's find out. Luke's account of this very same evening, this very same meal. Again, Luke's going to talk about how this turned into the very first communion in these verses, Luke 22, 19 and 20, when he says, and he took bread, this is after he washed their feet, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Again, this is as sacred of a moment as they come. The very first communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. This is where it started, right here. This is my body. This is my blood. And you want to know what happens next? Luke tells us. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Can you imagine? I mean, are you serious, guys? Right then and there, they're they're, they're fighting as he's announcing his death? Uh, Which just goes to show, you know, 
If your kids fight on the way to church or at church or after church or in the kids' programs here or whatever, just, you know, give yourself a little bit of a pause, relax, and just know that they were not the first, okay? (laughs) The disciples beat them to that long ago. It really helps you appreciate this, the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper because, you know, look at Jesus there in the middle. He's just like, oy vey. I mean, <laughs> come on, guys. And da Vinci is actually portraying another argument because here he's portraying when they are arguing over who the betrayer will be. So there's no less than two arguments that break out on the night of the very first communion. (laughs) The point is, this night did not get off to a very smooth start. I mean, it has all the appearance of a train wreck. I mean, we cloak it in song and liturgy, and and, and, uh, we we come to it with a a sense of, of reverence and awe if we are prepared. Here, it's just kind of, wheels are coming off. And on this all-important night, Jesus establishes you know, a, a new covenant. He's going to say, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's going to be about what he did on the cross. He is the supreme sacrifice. The sacrifice of animals was a foreshadowing to what he would do on the cross, and that's what we look to. He's also going to, according to God's plan, he's going to establish a new community, which is going to be much broader than ethnic Israel. It's going to include uh, people of every race, rank, status, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, male, female, all of those cultural, religious barriers. He's just going to knock down. He is going to flatten the cultural, religio, org chart of that day. And as Paul would say in Galatians 3, Because of this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ. Now, this was such a radical vision for humanity 2,000 years ago in a world defined by differences, accepted by differences. I mean, what a vision. But would you agree we still have a long ways to go? We have a long ways to go. Now, it's one thing to agree with this. It's another thing to live it and to experience it, whether it was among those first disciples or among us today. Because if we're going to live in the reality of this new covenant and enjoy the fellowship of this new community, if we're going to live with a sense of humility and gratitude over what Jesus has done for us on the cross, not jockeying for power or position or elevating ourselves because we look at someone else and go, yeah, well, they're not really making the cut. Whatever it is, if we're going to be one in Christ, if that is going to actually be realized in our midst, it is going to hang on the next thing that Jesus gives them, which is a new commandment, a new commandment. And if this doesn't stick, everything else unravels. It really does. As Paul says, man, if I have faith to move mountains, you know, if I have all knowledge and wisdom, but I do not love, I am what? What? 
Nothing, I'm, I'm a, a clanging gong. It's all empty. This is the glue that holds it all together. And in that moment, after washing their feet, equating the bread of the blood with his, his body, or excuse me, the, the bread of the cup with his body and blood, and when it's all getting buried by these arguments, I imagine Jesus just saying, okay, now time out, guys. Time out. Let me put it this way. John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, watch how he qualifies this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, you may be aware that there's over 600 commandments in our scriptures. 600, 613 to be exact. And they're really mostly about how we treat other people. The foundation is the Ten Commandments. And Jesus, previous in the Gospels, he summarized all of that down to two when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, here he's going to compress it even further. He's gonna, it's going to go from 613 to 10 to 2 to 1 when he says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And, you know, he could have gone around the room and he could have said, oh, you know, Peter, not to pick on you, but remember the day I called Matthew as a disciple. Do you remember that? That, because, see, Matthew, also called Levi, Matthew was a tax collector in Peter's hometown. That means it's very likely that whenever Peter would either enter the town or leave the town, there'd be Matthew going, they called guys like Matthew tax farmers. Or even worse, they, they, they bring their boat in to the shore with that day's catch, and there's Matthew right there on the beach ready to take his cut with the soldiers there to enforce it. And so when Jesus calls Matthew to be part of the 12, Matthew's got to be, are you kidding me? That guy? That guy is scum. That guy is the worst. (laughs) I don't know about the rest of you guys, but Matthew will not be my roommate in this new little thing we're doing here, okay? And Jesus could say rightly, you know, okay, so maybe you've learned to tolerate him, Peter, but you don't love him. You don't love him. Or James, John, again, not to pick on you guys, but do you you remember the day when you came to me and you said, hey, could we like sit on your left and your right in your kingdom, you know, when you're sitting on your throne? Could we do that? And the rest of you, you got so mad at them, not because you didn't think it was a bad idea. You were mad because they thought of it first. (laughs) He's saying, we can't do that anymore, guys. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And, and, And guys, disciples, if you get this right, The rest is going to fall into place. It will follow. So let me just give you three things. Three things 
to think about. And, and our, my prayer, my hope, is that these things will stick in our lives more and more and more as God continues to sanctify us, as Ricky talked about last night. Three things. First of all, loving others like Jesus loves me is less complicated but more demanding. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Do you ever notice how a person can live a squeaky clean life? I mean, they can be really, really good at keeping the rules but still lack love. You ever notice this? They had a name for people like that back in the day of Jesus. They called them Pharisees. And you got to bear in mind, the Pharisees had the best of intentions. They look back on Israel's mistakes and their idolatry, and they said, that is not going to happen to us anymore. When they came back from Babylon, it was like, we're not doing that. But they became so focused on, on you know, almost becoming like black belts in keeping the rules, they lost sight of the things that God cared about most, love, mercy, justice. I mean, remember what Jesus says after washing the disciples' feet? Notice, I want you to notice some key phrases here. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, what? Let me hear you. You also should wash each other's or one another's feet. I have set you a what? Example that you should do as I have done for you. I read a story uh, not too long ago about a Christian college in the Midwest. And a couple of years ago, freshman class arrives, and all of the senior males have concocted a plan, and they gather together all of the freshman males, and they blindfold them. And they start to lead them on this little walk. And they're going through campus and out beyond campus. And it has, it has all the appearances of one of these hazing rituals that are often, you know, go way too far and, and become ugly. These, these freshman boys, they don't know what's going on. And, and they hear, there's no shortage of testosterone, you know, and conversations, laughing, all this stuff as they lead them blindfolded. And the, then the freshman boys are sat down on a seat or it's a bench, they find out. And then they feel, they can hear the breathing of, of uh, someone in front of them. Each one, the senior boys have lined up facing uh, these freshman boys as they sit on this bench blindfolded. And then when they remove the blindfolds, the boys see that they're on the edge of a lake and that the senior boys have towels and buckets which they fill with the lake water and then they use to wash the feet of the freshman boys. And then they ask them to stand up and they hug them and they say, welcome, welcome to our community. You know, the school doesn't have a rule for that. They don't have a policy for that. It's kind of this organic thing that, that, that grew and continues to happen every single year at this Christian school. And you want to know why? Not because there's a rule, but because there's an identity. There's an identity and, and an affinity for what Jesus is saying in this text right here. The Apostle Paul touches on the same thing in Philippians 2 when he says, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And 
Now, it looks like Paul's kind of reaching back to this story a little bit. Well, how do, how do we treat one another? Well, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. A mindset of love, of humility, of service, of, of grace. And you know what? This is so clarifying. It's so clarifying. You know, from time to time, there will be people at our church. They'll come to me and they'll say, you know, Pastor Mark, actually, they just call me Mark, but they say, Mark, what does the Bible say about such and such? And I, most of the time, it's a sincere question. They're like, you know, we pay your salary, so give, give me some help here. And I'm happy to do that. Every once in a while, though, I can sense that there's an agenda. There's an ulterior motive. What they really want to know is how far can I push this? You know, what's the rule? What does the Bible really say? You know, what does it really say now? That's a very different question. And if you were to ask Paul that, well, what does the Bible say about that? Paul would have gone, well, huh. Bible, let's see, the scripture lives on scrolls in the synagogue, so whatever you have available has been written on your heart. You've memorized it. And the New Testament would have been a foreign term to him because they're writing letters and stuff like that. See, he might even go, Bible? What Bible? How about the mindset of Jesus? How about you just look to him and have that very same mindset? In other words... Loving others like Jesus loves me means asking, what does love require? What does love require? And you know what the thing is? We usually know, don't we? We usually know if we think about it. And I want to make something clear. I'm not talking about love in the ways that we may feel like we have the freedom to define it. I'm talking about Christ-like love. I'm talking about godly love. I'm talking about love that is consistent with the rule of Scripture. But it is the love that makes that rule make sense and have context and meaning. For instance, again, Paul on relationships in Ephesians chapter 4 and going into chapter 5, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Where's that phrase? There it is. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Paul seems to really like that phrase, just as. I wonder where he got that. Sounds a lot like love, just as I have loved you. In this case, forgive, just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. And, and if you're like me, I forgive I don't want to forgive, but I want to be forgiven. It sounds kind of ridiculous when I think of it that way, that I want to burn the bridge that I need to cross. True confession here. The Lord used Tuesday night in a powerful way in my life when Ricky was talking about forgiveness. I think that's why God had me here, to be honest. Because there's a person who betrayed someone I love dearly. And I realize I've been holding on to anger. Was I right to recognize it as a betrayal? Yeah, it was a betrayal. But I'm not that person's judge. And after all, 
I need grace just as much as the next person. And so I have been asking the Lord since Tuesday night, help me, Lord. I choose to release that anger. I choose to release that resentment. I choose to forgive, even though the sin really wasn't against me. It was against someone I loved, which in some ways, I don't want to say it's worse, but it's still really bad. But I choose, Lord, to extend the grace that I so desperately need. Paul continues. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, here it is again, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Don't fool yourself. Forgiveness is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. But it's also beautiful and liberating and good. Now, God's not going to ask you to die on a cross. Obviously, Jesus has done that for you, but will he ask you to offer yourself on behalf of others? Will he ask you to make sacrifices at times? Yeah. I don't know that I've ever been on, on, on the receiving end of this in a more powerful way than when I was in Honduras several years ago, and we went into a place, every place in Honduras is poor. Okay. Honduras has a smaller economy than Guatemala. It has a small, smaller economy than El Salvador. It is a very, very poor nation. But when we arrived there for a short-term mission, it was after a Category 5 hurricane had obliterated much of the country. Where we were in Nowheresville, Honduras, people who were accustomed to living on $3 a day were living on nothing because the banana plantations were gone and no one was in a hurry to put them back. They didn't seem to be in a hurry to put anything back. And so part of the plan was, on a particular night, we would go to, each one of us individually would go to a home of the Hondurans, Hondurans in this very little village you've never heard of. And so I, I arrive at this home in the afternoon, and it's a household that appears to be, uh, the head of the household is grandma. Um, I don't see a mom, and I don't see a dad. I just see grandma and a lot of kids. She's raising these children. Uh, we sit down at the, at the dinner table, and um, when they push the big casserole, casserole dish in front of me, um, it's a chicken and rice dish, and a light bulb goes off. I had seen oh, three, four chickens running around the yard, and I realized there's one less chicken now than there was earlier that day. But they have sacrificed one of their chickens for me, their only source of protein. And they will not serve themselves. They will not take a bite until they are convinced that I'm full. So I want you to imagine this. I'm sitting at the head of this table. There's grandma on the other side. All of these hungry kids looking at this dish, trying to be polite. Their, their stomachs are growling in hunger. It's the only meal they'll have that day. And I have to, I have to feign that I am, I'm just can't have another bite. Now, you want to talk about 
sacrificial, self-giving love. That was it there that day in Honduras. I'll never forget it. John writes later in his first letter, his first epistle, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, with, with, but with actions and truth. In fact, his entire epistle is really a commentary on the upper room in his gospel. He just kind of unpacks it all. It's clearly something that he never forgot. In 22 chapters of his gospel, he allocates four chapters to the scene in the upper room when Jesus washes the feet, establishes a new covenant, new community, and new commandment. And that's because there's so much writing on this. There's so much writing on this. And that brings me to the final point, which is this. If loving others like Jesus loves me, it is the key sign that my faith is real. It's the key sign that my faith is real. I mean, immediately after giving this command to love one another, he says, by this, by this, there it is, by this, Everyone will know if you are my disciples. If you what? Let me hear it. If you love one another. Not by how well you know the Bible, they will know you're my disciples. That's a great thing. But that's not it. Not by how upright and moral you are. That's a great thing too. But you know what? I know people who are upright and moral and good, and they are not Christians. So that's not how we're going to know that the world will know were his disciples, not even how good your theology is. Again, great stuff. But you know what? You can be right and ugly at the same time. Would you agree? Oh, you can be so right and so mean at the same time. That's why John writes, again, back to his epistle. This is 1 John 2, 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. So again, it all comes down to this commandment, love one another. And let me tell you something. When the church gets this right, when the church gets this right, the world sits up and takes notice. The world just takes notice. I don't know about you. You show me a high achiever, I'll admire that person. You show me someone who excels in Christ-like love, I'll want to be that person. I'll want to follow that person. I'll want to imitate that person. And incredibly, for this group, this, 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 this hot mass of disciples, after Jesus is crucified, but not even until after that, after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit indwells them, they start to love in the ways that Jesus loved them, and they begin to transform the world. Now, if you find this overwhelming in your own life, if this seems daunting, that means you get it. Because if you're like me, you go, <laughs> I don't have that kind of heart. 
I don't have that kind of love. But Jesus does. And Jesus can fill our hearts as his Holy Spirit begins to transform us. And those hearts, these cold, hard, hard hearts, they begin to beat more and more and more in sync with that of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. As it says in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. You can count on that. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You yield yourself to the Spirit, you will love. That's the promise. And you know, it gets realized in the little nitty-gritty aspects of our lives. It gets realized, you know, changing diapers and making lunches, lunches, it gets realized during the daily commute or on the job or out in the neighborhood, it get, gets realized in ordinary moments every single day. But listen, once you find yourself, hear this, once you find yourself being used of God to love others like you've been called to in Christ, you will not be satisfied with anything less. You won't be satisfied living any other way. I mean, this is why we were made. And I don't care how much success you achieve, how high you fly, what mountains you climb. If you miss out on your calling to love, you will miss out on the reason you were put on this planet. And so will I. This is at the core of our calling. So Mount Hermon, wherever you go from here, be about loving the people around you there as Jesus has loved you. I came across, I'll close with this, I came across a, a beautiful example of this. I, John Ortberg was talking about an article one time in the San Francisco Chronicle. It was a feature about a, a San Francisco City a metro driver, a bus driver named Linda Wilson Allen. This is Linda right here. Uh, Linda just loves people. She gets to know her regulars. She learns their names, their birthdays. In fact, one day, she pulls up to the bus stop, and she meets a lady named Ivy. Ivy's there with all sorts of uh, grocery bags, and there's no way Ivy's going to get all of that onto the bus. And so Linda just kind of hits the parking brake and goes down onto the sidewalk and loads Ivy's grocery bags and stuff onto the bus, even though there were some unhappy people behind honking their horns. From then on, Ivy lets other buses pass by so that she can ride on Linda's bus. And she's not alone. In fact, another time, uh, Linda saw a woman named Tanya. It was late in the day. Tanya was at a bus shelter. It was just a day or two before Thanksgiving, and Linda could tell that Tanya was lost and alone and scared. And she says, hey, you look like you could use a place to stay at Thanksgiving. Why don't you come on home with me and kick it with the kids? Tanya and Linda are great friends now. Uh, the reporter who wrote this, this article is also a regular on the bus. And again, this is in the San Francisco Chronicle. This is not an article in Christianity Today. And yet he says, 
Linda has built such a little community of love and blessing on that bus that passengers offer Linda use of their vacation homes. They bring her potted plants and and flowers. We discovered she likes to wear scarves to accessorize her uniform, and so everyone, she's got more scarves than she can ever use. One person, one passenger thought they would kind of one-up everyone else. They gave her a rabbit fur collar. Obviously not a passenger that works for PETA. (laughs) Now, I want you to think about what a thankless job being a bus driver in San Francisco can be. I mean, you got traffic jams, you got cranky passengers, you got gum on seats, you got, you know, engine breakdowns, you got all of this stuff. I mean, how does Linda maintain such a consistent attitude, mindset of Christ-like love, well, I'll tell you, because the reporter includes this little detail. He says, her mood is set early every morning when she gets down on her knees to pray for 30 minutes, and she lets Jesus fill her up so then she can pour out love on the people on her bus every day, and at the end of every day, She gets to the end of her line. She always says the same thing. She says, that's all. I love you. Take care. Have you ever had a bus driver tell you they love you? (laughs) Well, you will if you ride on Linda's bus. In fact... People ask, you know, where, where can I experience the kingdom of God? Well, I'll tell you where you can experience the kingdom of God. You can experience um, it on Linda's bus driving through the streets of San Diego or San Francisco. That's where. And you, you want to know where else the kingdom of God is? It's wherever you go. And you love people just as Jesus has loved you. So let's ask ourselves a final penetrating question, shall we? Who has Jesus called me to love? Who has Jesus called me to love? This person in my own life who I mentioned who betrayed someone I love, I realize Jesus has called me to love that person. I don't like that person. Jesus loves that person. Jesus died for that person. Jesus is calling me to love that person. Who is Jesus calling you to love? Would you be willing to let him impress that upon your heart as we go to prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity this week to uh, be in the spiritual microwave that Mike talked about yesterday to have your work in, your, in our lives accelerated and intensified because we have come away and we have been in this space that allows for that. 
where there is a saturation of, of fellowship and, and word and spirit and praise and worship. And so we thank you for the, the, the catalyst, the spiritual catalyst that exists in Mount Hermon because you are here in a powerful way. And, and Lord, some of us here today uh, may need to lay, lay something on the altar. Some of us may need to lay a burden, a, a, a relationship, um, an illness, a sickness, a hope, a dream, a desire. Some of us may need to lay ourselves on the altar. And, and, and so I'm going to invite you just in the, the sanctity of this moment, I'm going to invite Adrian to play a closing song. And if there's something that you need to lay on the altar here today, don't miss this opportunity. I promise you when you get home, that thought, that desire, that impulse that is from the Holy Spirit, it's, it's going to weaken by the minute as you go on with so-called normal life. And so don't miss this opportunity to, to do some business with the Lord. And I'm not just talking to those of you here in, under this roof, but those of you out in the balcony, please don't let that geographic, the, the, just the, the distance, the spatial dif- distance, um, make you feel like I'm not talking to you either. You know, you, you can make that walk as well down to the front here. You know, the buses will wait. But don't miss this opportunity if you can hear my voice right now to just come and pray and say, Lord Jesus, I give this to you. And so, Adrian, go ahead and begin. Um, I'll pray with you if you like. I'll stay down here. But let's just take a moment to take advantage of what the Lord has to us and, and yield to what the Spirit is saying to us.